And welcome into this week's edition of The Scoop on Life. I'm Chase Robinson. That's Lauren Robinson. So glad you're joining us this week. We're excited. Great show lined up for you today. We are joined by Scott Klusendorf. He is the president of the Life Training Institute, uh, where he trains pro-life advocates to defend their views. And uh, he has been featured on Focus on the Family, Truths That Transform, and American Family Radio. He is a graduate of UCLA and the author of Pro-Life 101. Scott Klusendorf, welcome to The Scoop on Life. Chase and Lauren, good to be with you. Thank you for being with us today. And um, one thing that Chase didn't mention right there is that, Scott, I've read your book, Case for Life, The Case for Life, and Stand for Life that you and John Enzer wrote together. Um, had the privilege of having John Enzer on the podcast last week. I'm excited to have you on today. And I will say that by reading those two books, I was confronted with things that I'd never even considered before as far as the why behind being pro-life. And that's something that um, through this podcast that we're really seeking to equip our listeners, why why are we pro-life and how do we defend that? And so, Scott, um, you train thousands of students every year um, on how to defend life and how to make a persuasive case for that. And we know, um, I was reading a little bit on Life Training Institute and what that was and what all y'all do. And um, what I found is that it exists for one purpose, and that was to empower others with the knowledge and conviction necessary to make a case for life that changes heart and minds. Um, and you train those individuals to make a case for life based on science and philosophy, all while yet keeping the gospel central, which we obviously know is the most important thing. Um, and then in your book, Case for Life, you mentioned that two major steps to build a defense for your pro-life case is first, to simplify the issue and then second, to then make the case for life. So can you expound on that process a little bit for us and just kind of explain what that looks like? Sure. The American public thinks abortion is a complex issue. They think that because people disagree, there's no right answer. But of course, that's a fallacious way to think. People once disagreed on slavery. It didn't mean there wasn't a right answer. They once disagreed on whether women should have the right vote. It didn't mean there wasn't a right answer. So the absence of consensus does not mean an absence of truth. So the way we simplify this debate is to show that it's not about choice. It's not about privacy. It's not about trusting women. It's not about forcing one's morality. It's not about one forcing one's religious view. It's about one question that trumps every other issue. And that issue is, what is the unborn? We have to answer the question, what is the unborn, before we answer the question, can we kill the unborn? And the American public largely ignores that question. Would anybody we know talk about choice and who decides and trusting people to make their own decisions if we were talking about killing two-year-olds? And of course, the answer is no. So why do they talk that way with abortion? For one reason, they assume the unborn are not human. They don't argue for it. They just assume it. It would be like me, Chase and Lawrence, saying to you, when did you guys stop cheating on your income taxes? And you say, wait a minute, we, we don't cheat. We never have cheated. Uh, you're assuming something here. And I say, well, answer the question. When did you start cheating on your taxes? Now, the question is loaded. It's unfair because I'm assuming the very thing I'm trying to prove. And people do this with abortion all the time. Rather than argue that the unborn are not human, they simply assume the unborn are not human, and proceed from there. And we as pro-lifers, to simplify this debate, have to draw that assumption out into the light and deal with it. And so we use a little tactic called trot out the toddler. When anybody assumes the unborn aren't human, 
we ask ourselves, is this a good argument for killing a toddler? If the answer is no, then we know they're assuming something about the unborn that they're not assuming about the toddler. For example, if somebody said to you, Chase, Lauren, how come you don't trust women to make their own decisions? How come you hate women? How come you just want to uh, treat them like second class citizens by deciding for them what they want to do? You don't need to get defensive at that point. Instead, you could look them right in the eye, hold out your hand at knee level and say, pretend I have a two-year-old in front of me. His parents want to rough him up in the privacy of the bedroom and they want us to trust them to make their own personal decisions. Should we allow them to do that? Of course, the answer will be no. Your answer then is why not? Well, because he's a human being. Ah, if the unborn are human like that toddler, should we kill them in the name of privacy or trusting people to make their own decisions? Well, that's different. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. Ah, you may be right about that. You could be right. I may be wrong about the unborn, but you got to argue for it. You can't just assume it. So the first step is to clarify what the real issue is. The real issue isn't choice. It isn't privacy. It isn't trusting women. It isn't forcing morality. It's one question. What is the unborn? I am vigorously pro-choice on women choosing their own husbands, choosing their own worldview, choosing the cars they want to drive, the pets they want to own, the clothes they want to wear. I'm pro-choice on all of those things. But some choices are wrong, like intentionally killing innocent human beings. That's something we shouldn't allow. So we've got to first answer the question, what is the unborn, before we answer the question, can we kill them? And kind of stemming from that argument, so then we can assume someone's going to come back and say, well, then how do we know? And what makes the life valuable, you know? And so right. I appreciate I appreciate it too how, you know, in, the, in your books that I read, how then, okay, let's simplify it, as you said, you know, say, okay, then the question is, um, can we kill human, a human life? And then, so they will say, okay, well, maybe then the life in the womb isn't a human. And one question I found in kind of some of your resources online was, was this, it says, if it's wrong to hurt people because of their skin color or gender, why is it okay to hurt them because of their size, level of development, location, or dependency? So then how would you answer that? How would you come back on that? Well, keep in mind that our nation is divided right now over a key question. Who counts as one of us? Right. Either you believe each and every human being has an equal right to life, or you don't. If you do believe each and every human being has an equal right to life, then by uh, automatic rational uh, processes, you should be pro-life because the science of embryology is clear that the unborn are indeed human beings from fertilization forward. So if we're looking at this strictly as an equality question, and somebody says to you, I believe every human being has an equal right to life. Well, then that would apply to the unborn. But usually people don't mean what they say. They mean those they want to have a right to life have equal rights, but not everyone. Then I point out that once you decide that there's a certain class of human beings you can set aside to be killed because they're not, quote, equal, uh, with another uh, side of humanity that you can't kill because they are persons and thus equal, you're going to end up with savage inequality. And let me illustrate it this way, Lauren. Are you and I and Chase equally self-aware at this moment? The answer is no. Uh, I don't know when you had your cup of coffee this morning. I had two cups today and caffeine 
is my lifesaver in the morning. In fact, I tell people I'm an agnostic until my second cup of coffee in the morning. And that's because it tends to fire my brain up. If self-awareness is what gives us value and you have more of it than me, you're a greater person than I am. You have a greater right to life than I do. Let's say we say it's the ability to feel pain. If you have the ability to feel pain more than I do, and that's what's decisive, then you have a greater right to life than I do. What if it's having desires? I mean, pick out any category you want. Uh, there will not be equality. You may have greater desires than I do. Does that mean then you have a greater right to life? As soon as you define human value by properties that none of us share equally, and may come and go in the course of our lifetimes. As soon as you define human value on those terms, you get savage inequality because those with more of those traits will have greater value than those with less. And by the way, who gets to decide what traits count? The answer is those in power. So human value becomes totally subjective at that point and equality is out the window. I would rather go with what we see in the Declaration of Independence all humans have value. All human beings have certain natural rights because they're endowed with them from a transcendent source. And they don't come and go based on our abilities. We have them simply because we're human. And so I guess, you know, obviously, like we talked about in the beginning, our understanding and standpoint of it is ultimately rooted in God's word. But, you know, if you have somebody that you're arguing with that is an atheist and doesn't believe in God and doesn't has holds the Bible to no value, you know, I guess how would you approach that with them when, you know, the Bible is obviously our ultimate source of knowledge and information. But then for an unbeliever say, well, I don't believe the Bible. So what what case do I have? You know, right. Well, keep this in mind. You're exactly right. In a universe that came from nothing and was caused by nothing. Human beings, whatever their stage of development, in the womb, out, doesn't matter. Human beings and indeed all living things are cosmic accidents, which means nothing has intrinsic value. Mm. But do keep this in mind. Number one, most secularists do not live according to their espoused worldview. They keep smuggling value in. So they say the woman is a subject of rights and therefore has a right to an abortion. On atheism, where does that right come from? There's no transcendent grounding for it. So the same court that grants a right to an abortion can revoke it later. And an atheist really shouldn't be able to complain about that because just what is is what is. There's nothing transcendent that we ought to aspire to. But the second thing to keep in mind, Lauren, is that atheists, though they can't ground moral claims, they can recognize them. For example, atheists recognize that racism is wrong. You see that all over the news right, right. now. Mm -hmm. uh, you see secular people who deny God's existence, deny biblical authority, but they're marching in the street claiming that racism is not only mistaken, it's downright evil, and we're going to get rid of every trace of it. Uh, they are imposing a moral view. So even though they deny the grounding source for morality, they nonetheless can recognize certain moral claims. And if people can recognize that it's wrong to discriminate against people based on skin color or gender, they can recognize that it's wrong to discriminate on human beings based on size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Right, right. And I, I, totally, I totally get what you're saying there. And I think that that's one thing that the reading um, Case for Life and the Stand for Life that was really helpful for me. Like, 
we obviously believe what we believe and argue what we argue because we believe God and his word. But it's like, okay, but I'm also going to be having these conversations with people probably who don't believe in God. And so to be able to, to defend it from either position, I think is huge. And so again, it really is. And this brings up another point, Lauren, and that is this. While it's true, one of the ways that God restrains evil in the culture is to change hearts through salvation. That's one of the ways he does it. But as we read scripture, we see that there will be many people who don't come to a saving faith in Christ. In fact, the majority of people will not. So God has another way in scripture that he restrains evil, and that is through the uh, prevalence of civil law that restrains the heartless. And Martin Luther King put it real well. He said, the law can't make the white man love me, but it can sure stop him from lynching me, and that matters. So as pro-lifers, we don't have to convert everybody to Christ to convey a persuasive message. We hope that many will come to Christ, and that's why we include the gospel in, in our presentations. But to win on abortion, it does not require converting people to Christ because non-believers can recognize moral truths even though they're going to struggle grounding them. So in the last chapter of The Case for Life, um, you mentioned our need as Christians to, you say, quote, open the casket on abortion um, because yeah. until we do, Americans will continue tolerating injustice they never have to look at. So yeah. how do we as pro-life followers of Christ open the casket on abortion? And what does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? Yeah, well, the short answer is we need to show the American public abortion. Uh, Abraham Lincoln in uh, a conversation with the abolitionist Fred Ross. And Douglas said to Mr. Lincoln, Mr. President, your arguments on behalf of the humanity of the slave are stellar. They're second to none. Nobody can refute them. They are literally the best on the planet, but nobody cares. And what you need to do, Mr. President, is reawaken the moral imagination of the nation. And from that point forward, you began to see the photographs, the first photographs that emerged on the scene, the black and white photograph of a slave with his back just scarred from uh, the top of the neck down to his spine. Uh, you see the uh, other horrific images of slaves. Uh, and Lincoln and those in the North began to circulate these photographs to uh, win support for ending slavery in the North. Uh, and literally, the pictures began to change how people felt about slavery as a predicate to changing how they ultimately thought and behaved about slavery. And the same is true with abortion. We change how people feel about it as a predicate to changing how they think and ultimately behave. It's not a matter of using graphic imagery in place of good arguments. It's a matter of using the pictures as an adjunct to good arguments. For example, I'm sure that uh, you and Chase, if you've ever taken a history course in college, you saw images of the Vietnam War, naked children running from villages that had been napalmed, or World War II, bodies stacked like cordwood. We take our kids to see movies like Saving Private Ryan, or Schindler's List, or Hacksaw Ridge that are historical films that are incredibly gruesome, yet they convey truths words alone cannot convey. And the same is true with abortion. And the, the example of opening the casket is the story of Emmett Till, 14-year-old African-American boy, 
killed in Money, Mississippi in 1955, and his mother displayed his broken, gruesome body in an open casket funeral after he was brutally killed by, by two racist men. And that picture of Emmett Till went all over the world and launched the civil rights movement in this country. And what we're saying is pro-lifers can take a, a, a nod from that and learn that the way we make the public look at abortion is we open the casket on it. We show them what it is. Now, as Christians, we're going to not just show the truth. We're also going to point people to the remedy for their sin. We're going to point them to the gospel and to Christ as a means, uh, an antidote for their sin of abortion. And that's why we include uh, the gospel in all of our presentations. And I think that's so true. You know, we've talked before on the podcast about how even as Christians, sometimes we keep the casket shut, you know, like we know what's going on and we know what's happening, yet it's painful to look at. And it's almost like we don't want to look at it. It's like we have to look at it. We have to look at what's going on and call it for what it is. Well, you're exactly right, Lauren. Uh, if you stop and think about it, if you count not just the women who had abortions, but the, the men in their lives who encouraged them to abort, the parents encouraged, maybe uh, a friend who encouraged another friend to abort, you're looking at a minimum of 166 million Americans who've played a role in abortion. That's nearly half our population, which means to talk about abortion in our churches uh, is going to affect a lot of people, and a lot of clergy and Christian leaders fear that. And if they are not more horrified of abortion than they are terrified about preaching on it, they're going to remain silent. And one of the ways we change the hearts of clergy is to show them abortion so they know what it is. How do I know this? Because I was one of those guys. In 1990, I was an associate pastor at a church in Southern California. If you had asked me, are you pro-life? I would have said yes, but I wasn't lifting a finger to stop the killing. And what changed it is seeing abortion in a presentation where I saw an eight minute video depicting it and it forever changed where I was to where I was willing to make lifestyle sacrifices to do something about this. And that's the kind of heroic action we need to call people to. Well, that's so great. And so we want to encourage, you know, you as our listeners to, to know, you know, know what's going on, know what abortion is, know, know how it happens. Like you said, when we see it for what it is, it's going to move us to do something about it. And so, again, as I mentioned, we highly recommend Scott Klusenberg's book, uh, The Case for Life, really well written, really compelling. It's going to help you build an argument and a defense as well as the Stand for Life with Scott Klusendorf and John Enzer. And Scott, if you would, I know on Life Training Institute's website, I believe there's almost like a summarized version of The Case for Life, kind of helping yeah. um, build the argument without reading the entire book if they need that. So is that on Life Training Institute's website? How can they find that? Yeah, that's there, including a one-minute defense of the pro-life view, where they can literally learn to defend it in a minute or less. Our argument's real simple. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. We defend that with science, showing that the unborn are distinct, living, whole human beings, and we defend it with philosophy, showing there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good differences for saying you had no value then, but you do now. Now you can summarize that in less than a minute, and that portion of the website will equip you to do that. And that's on lifetraininginstitute.com. It's prolifetraining.com. Prolifetraining.com. Prolifetraining.com, okay. uh-huh. So we would encourage you again, be educated, 
find out how to build this defense for being pro-life. There's a lot of good resources out there. And like I said, right now we're rec recommending Scott Klusendorf, his books, um, and then that one minute defense. That's awesome to be able to defend your case. So Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Chase and Lauren, thank you for doing this program. I applaud you for doing something on this issue and uh, creating a podcast where you can equip and train. Uh, my hat's off to you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Scott Klusendorf joining us here for The Scoop on Life. We appreciate you taking time to listen in as well. I want to remind you that we are on social media. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Search for The Scoop on Life podcast. Uh, like it, follow it, and uh, you can get up to date on when we post it and uh, all the, the good stuff we got going on with The Scoop on Life. So check us out on social media, Facebook and Instagram. And also, you can listen to The Scoop on Life on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and YouTube. Just search for The Scoop on Life. Subscribe to us and uh, listen in each week as we release a new episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you next week for more The Scoop on Life.